Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Amerisource Bergen where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. In this episode, the fourth of our GPO legislative update series, Joel White, President and CEO of Horizon Government Affairs, discusses federal budget and debt negotiations and the implications for Medicare, Medicaid, and ACA. Great. Thank you so much. And welcome to today's webinar. We're going to focus in on the end of the public health emergency, uh, where we're at today and where we're heading in the next several months and couple of years. Uh, obviously, coming through COVID what has been a significant challenge for patients and physicians and other professionals in the health industry to manage and to deal with in terms of getting the things that we need to deliver care, but then ensuring that patients can have access to care and have a good outcome. So, you know, downplaying what we've just been through over the last couple of years would be a big mistake. And so we're going to get into a bunch of issues related to the end of the public health emergency, but then also talk a little bit about where Congress is at right now vis-a-vis the administration, what they're thinking about, and where we might be heading with public policy and changes to programs going forward and what that might mean for, for you and your practice. So just by way of background, a little bit more background on me. I am the president of Horizon Government Affairs. It's a company I started in 2007. Uh, we've worked on a number of different laws for our clients and regulations with primarily with CMS, CMMI, and HHS, the federal level, but we also operate at the state level and have a state affairs program. I'm the former staff director of the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee. I worked on uh, for, as congressional staff for 12 years where I wrote nine different laws, including the creation of the Part D program, health savings accounts, and a lot of laws related to physician and hospital reimbursement for drugs, services, patient care, value-based care, and along the way produced more than 100 hearings for Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce. So I'm really glad to be here today. I'm glad to talk to people who are on the ground experiencing our system as it is and prospects for changing that system for the better for how you do your job every day. So why don't we get right into it and talk about the end of the public health emergency and all the different things that are going on. So some of the things that we'll talk about today, I want to do a deeper dive on and get into some more detail. But to the extent that you have questions about anything, really submit those through and we'll try and get to as many as we can. And if we can't get to all of them, I know Amerisource is great about being responsive to its customers. So um, just let us know. We'll try to get you an answer for anything that you might have a question on. But these are kind of some of the big issues that we're looking at with the public health emergency. And if you didn't know, the official public health emergency related to the COVID pandemic ended on May 11th, just a couple of weeks ago. That had been in effect for almost two and a half years. And there's big implications because during that public health emergency, the administration and Congress took major steps to enact new laws, provide significant funding and waive requirements of existing laws and regulations to expand access, to ensure coverage of tests and treatments and medical countermeasures and vaccines. It also expanded greatly access through remote care and telehealth and um, helped in a number of things to keep patients out of the hospital setting and try and treat them either at the home or in the physician office in ways that uh, required waivers of existing rules. 
And it did all that by trying to keep track of what was happening on the ground and requiring data reporting into public health authorities, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, which are all in some way being affected by the end of the public health emergency because they were all in some way linked to that emergency and the waivers and changes to rules that were in place while the COVID emergency was happening. So we're going to talk about Medicaid because that has a big impact on coverage. We're going to talk about some of the provider waivers and some of the things you may have questions about right now, particularly with the in-office dispensing change related to in-office ancillary exception. Um, telehealth, certainly a big issue for a lot of people. Um, vaccines, testing and treatment, and how that coverage might be changing. And then really, what will Congress do? Some of the other issues I won't get into as deep an overview on, like specifically the PrEP Act. PrEP Act allows for immunity from liability in, deliver, in delivering uh, medical countermeasures and really was a way to get pharmacists more involved in delivering vaccines and some treatments in states where they were licensed to do so. Um, but if we want to get into PrEP Act, just let me know. We'll go to PrEP Act. But uh, really wanted to focus on some of these bigger changes and things that are more specific to your practice. So going through the history here is important. And I think that the way, the way I think about it is that you've got the administration on one side and you've got Congress on the other. And they really worked hand in glove during the pandemic to create flexibility to help uh, meet providers and patients where they were. I don't say that it's perfect in every instance, but certainly there was a lot of flexibility created during the pandemic. And I think that what we saw as a result was some innovation and some new ways of delivering care and making sure people got a lot of what they needed. Certainly what we're seeing now is that people who had delayed care or didn't seek care um, for conditions like cancer or eye care or cardiovascular disease may have gotten sicker during the pandemic because voluntary care was shut down at some hospitals for some period of time, et cetera. Um, but really these flexibilities were done under legal authority so on the administration side, or what I want to encourage you to look at the blue column, the emergency declarations, you know, one of the first things the Trump administration did in response to COVID was to declare a public health emergency. And that gave the Secretary of Health and Human Services the authority to waive or modify federal requirements, um, allowed them to access more funds and deploy those funds for things like medical countermeasures or public health activities and um, really flexed up the personnel rules to make personnel changes and deploy people where they need to be deployed. That's what expired on May 11th. One of the other first acts the Trump administration took was they uh, invoked the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to allow the FDA to issue emergency youth use authorizations. And those are actually still in effect. And so those were used for the vaccines. They were used for some of the treatments. And really, those EUAs will continue until they're rescinded by the Food and Drug Administration. The Under the National Emergencies Act, that really gave HHS the authority to waive or modify a lot of requirements in Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and HIPAA during the public health emergency. So the public health emergency has to be declared before the national emergencies authorities to waive things like stark law changes can be invoked under the National Emergencies Act. And then I mentioned the PREP Act, which gives that liability immunity and really accelerated the use of pharmacy in particular in de delivering vaccines and, you know, more than 250 million vaccines through the retail pharmacy channel uh, during COVID, a lot in the physician office as well. 
some in the hospital, some in mass immunization sites. So those were the major emergency declarations um, used by the administration. And as a result, HHS has waived or modified almost 200 healthcare regulations. Those include um, like set of care requirements when delivering remote care, physician supervision requirements, um, Stark law uh, for in-office exception and things like that. And then CMS was also taking in waiver requests under 1135 authority. That's the part of the, the statute. They've processed about 250,000 waiver requests to flex things up and allow people to deliver care. And then each state really had their own approach. If you think of like what Florida did and what California did, you probably get two very different views of what those states did in terms of economic activity, healthcare access, whether or not a vaccine card was required to go, for example, to a restaurant or a mask was required uh, in a healthcare facility. The states really pursued different unique approaches to the COVID emergency. And so a lot of stuff that I'm gonna talk about is really at the national level, the experience in your state was probably a lot different based on where you're at. And the other thing I wanna say is that this is where Congress steps in Congress said that certain emergencies, or the administration said certain the public health emergency itself will end on May 11th, but certain flexibilities will continue past then, either based on the administration's regulatory flexibility and the power that they have through regulations, or because Congress passed a law that said, for example, we want telehealth to continue in its current flex state after the public health emergency ends. And so they passed a law that actually extended a lot of the telehealth flexibilities to 2020, the end of 2024. But Congress, uh, really what they did was they spent a lot of money and provided almost $6 trillion to respond to the pandemic. And some of that money remains unspent, but you can see some of the laws here. The first one that was passed was that COVID supplemental. and. Uh, that really provided $8 billion, and it was a first response to what we didn't really know what it was. And towards the end there, we had a $2 trillion bill in the American Rescue Plan that was really more about stimulus and assistance to individuals and expansion of the Affordable Care Act coverage subsidies um, and a lot of money to CDC and NIH and ARPA and some of these other agencies that deal with public health type issues. But the point is like lots of flexibility, lots more money in the system and additional money to providers, particularly hospitals to deal with this public health threat. But most things end, all things end, I guess. What I wanted to show here is that that staged ending of the public health emergency. So officially the health emergency is over. It ended on May 11th. That was the result of the president signing a resolution from Congress. Congress passed a resolution saying the public health emergency should be ended by May 11th. The president signed that in the law, and so the emergency was ended. The Biden administration could have ended it uh, before then, but the president took the step to sign that resolution and, and make it official. So there's a number of provisions ending on May 11th that ended on May 11th. There's other provisions that are ending at the end of this year. And then there's other provisions that are ending at a future date. And some of those have a date certain. Some of those don't have a date certain. That's all for this episode of On Call. Our next episode will feature information on the end of the public health emergency and what it means for practices. 
If you have any questions for our guests or have a topic you would like to learn more about, email us at oncallgpo at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.